Welcome, gentle listeners, to Steel and Spice. Before Rachel and I sit the freshly brewed pot of Irish breakfast tea as we dive into The Bastard Executioner. If you feel so inclined, pour yourself a cup and join us by the fireside. And what are you drinking today, gentle listener? That sounds wonderful. My name is Ken Viteri Lynn. I'm a historian and period costume designer, and as always, I am joined by my close friend Rachel, an associate professor of English and literature at Emerson College. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing well. So while the Bastard Executioner is not, how would you describe it? It's not a biopic, but it is still a drama that takes place in a period of history, um, Mm -hmm. specifically the turn of the 14th century, i.e. 1300, while Edward II is on the throne. It also decides to sort of spit in the face of that Mm -hmm. and take dramatically wild turns throughout its very brief 10 episodes, to the point where I'm not surprised that it was cancelled. Is it? about somebody who is a historical figure, or do they fictionalize a person to live within a historical setting? They fictionalize a person. Okay. So, I so say, it is a historical fiction? Yes. Bordering on historic fantasy. Okay. The fact that dragons did not show up was surprising by the end of the show. By 1094, they'd already, they had won back most of their territories from Norman rule. But then by like the 1280s, Edward I had completely dominated Wales. He gave the title of Prince of Wales to Edward II, who we see in the show um, in 1301. And then the show, I would say, takes place right around 1307. Um, just because of like he's been in in power for a while it says they call edward the second king they call him king edward the second and so i'm guessing 1307 because that's by that point king edward the first was dead um that's right around when he died and what they don't really go into and what i wish they would go into is that 1284 this is the first colony of england this is england's first colony and this is the first time that england has taken a colony and has colonized a place and so like that's a story that i would love to see is the story of the first colonized people to see a story of um you know comparing conquering wales and how the welsh fought back to conquering the united states and conquering the americas and how the americas fought back and that would be a very interesting story uh but that's not the story that the bastard executioner chooses to tell so this show is Three different shows all wrapped into one. The first show that you watch is a show about a man named Wilk, I think is his name. And he used to be a Welsh soldier and he fought the Scots and he was betrayed and he almost died until an angel saved his life. Yes. As long There's as a lot he... of his- There are some historical accounts of that, according to people. Yeah, people see things. That's what they, they say. And then the angel tells him, you must live the life of a different man. So he goes off, and he lives in a village, and he marries a woman, and she gets pregnant, and they're about to have a child. Mm -hmm. He's very anti the baron of their fief. He and his friends put on hoods and masks, and they go trash his stuff. This makes the baron very angry, and he's like, I'm going to attack this I'm going to have an attack. And I'm going to kill them. And he's very comically villainous. Just like Tom's Slits a boy's throat very quickly. Yes. For virtually no reason. And he's like, tell me who the hooded men are. And they're like, they're our husbands. And he's like, haha, I knew it. Kill them all. And he kills them all. And so you're like, okay, 
This show is about a man who gets revenge on a baron for killing his village. Yes. And that's an hour into the pilot. Two-hour pilot, by the way. Oh, that's a movie-length pilot. I would not watch a pilot that was two hours long. Well, it's split into two episodes on Hulu, so it was slightly more manageable. So by the end of the first, the first pilot, yes. because I should note that the pilot, the second half of the pilot, is a pilot for a different television show entirely. That show starts off with him and... A Welsh rebel leader named Wolf teaming up and killing the Baron. Oh, they did it. Fifteen minutes into the second pilot. They've accomplished the tasks set out by the show. They did. They did. They've finished. Checkmark. Done. Moving on to the second pilot, which is... Or the second show, which is uh, where he gets stabbed, and then he's got to be an executioner. He's got to be the executioner that they killed. He has to, like, just take his place for some reason. He goes to the Baroness to tell her that her husband was sadly killed by some other people. Not him. Definitely not me. Haha. And he convinces her that he is, in fact, the executioner. And so he's going to be the new town torturer for her and her commissioner. Okay. Totally different show. This show lasts about eight episodes. Oh, right. Until we get to episode ten, where we find out he is a direct descendant of Jesus Christ. Amen. (laughs) And that Jesus was actually the 13th apostle, and that his gospel is written on, like, one sheet of paper. There's only one of them. But all of the copies have been tattooed onto the bodies of his followers, which is why a priest for the last five episodes has been skinning pagans, Mm -hmm. (laughs) trying to find all of the pages of the book, and he has been tasked with killing all of the pagans, which they are pagans, but they're also not pagans, they are descendants of... Jesus. And also German? Mm. For some reason. Unfortunate. They're all German. The main lady, the main healer woman, who's like his mom, spoiler, is... I can't tell what where she's supposed to be from. She's just doing like a weird accent the whole time, like a vaguely Eastern European accent. All of this, gentle listeners, all of this preamble is so that we can talk about what makes a good period drama and what makes a good show, as well as... Is this even really a period drama? I don't know if it's a show. (laughs) Is this a show? I don't know if this is a show or if this is three pilots with a few episodes in between. I don't know what's happening. So you could say that the making of a good show is not one that changes the plot dramatically. And radically. Every few episodes. Every few episodes. Think about, when you're writing a show, think about you're selling me a concept. Mm -hmm. And you have to sell that concept to me within the first hour. The the final bit of that sales pitch is called the hook, and that's usually what happens in the last two to three minutes of your pilot. This show... Like, every... The end of every single scene had a hook. I was so confused. Mm. Ordinarily, when we watch a period drama, a lot of them tend to be about, and I know not all of them that you watch tend to be like this, but a lot of them that I watch tend to be like this, because I watch a lot of period dramas with my father, Mm. and a lot of them have the basic storyline of guy who has nothing, you know, villager, farmer, ex-knight, usually an ex-knight, must kill a man in power, and there's something about this as a medieval historian that irks me. And Mm. I think that is that the Catholic Church 
is a big deal. That's true. And it's a problem, particularly in these pieces. So boiling down the Catholic Church to just one evil king, or in this case, one evil baron, is drastically underrepresenting the actual problem of power dynamics in the medieval period. I think another issue with it is that sometimes people create period dramas because they want to filter modern issues through the lens of history. So a lot of the gender relations or power politics are the same as they are right now, which is inaccurate. Because I think that if you actually show history the way that it was, and how much it's changed or has shaped the culture that we are in now, actually representing history accurately represents how arbitrary the things that we do now are based on what happened and how ridiculous history is, but also how separate what we consider norms today are from what they used to be. Yes. That is something that I wanted to talk about with the Bastard Executioner in particular, is that they do a really good job of representing how the gender politics were back in the day. One of the biggest misconceptions that I've run into with um, so-called history buffs of Mm. the white and male persuasion, you can recognize them by their encyclopedic knowledge of World War II weaponry, Mm. they seem to be under the impression that women in any time before right now were, you know, slaves of the household, slaves of their husband. Mm. And I don't know how to tell them without cursing that it's simply just not true. The, The wife in the medieval period of a lord, that is. The wife of a peasant would do equally as much work. She's a farmer. So she, she would do everything that her husband did because two hands because make less work. Yeah, you can't afford to not have everybody in your family doing manual labor. Mm-hmm. You, you have to. Like, if she's not in the fields, she's, like, building your house, my dude. Yeah. She's not cooking all day. There's a reason that British recipes... Are like that. Are like that, is because you would just slap them on the stove for mm. eight hours and then go do something else. Like, wives aren't just sitting by the fireside embroidering because they don't have that luxury. And not even women of status would be doing that either. Women of status are balancing the the household accounts, they're writing letters. Pretty much any letter that we have, surviving letter we have today, there's a good chance it was written by the wife of the man whose signature that is on the bottom, because she was in charge of diplomatic relations. She was in charge of every part of the household that didn't include training people and having face-to-face interactions with other lords, mm-hmm. because other lords were equally as sexist as we can, as we remember them being. Yes. <laughs> they were like, well, she's my wife. She can't do that. But like, she's doing it. She's sitting here doing it. She's doing all the fucking work. Mm. And that's the thing that I really liked about this series, is that the the Baron dies, as I stated, almost immediately. And instead of them just being like, okay, you don't have an heir, so this is just gonna go to the next guy that we see, they were like, you, the Baroness, will stay in charge of this land and you will do everything that you have been doing as well as everything that your husband did until we can find someone to replace you. Unless, and sometimes they would be, they would say, oh, well, you're, you're a good enough candidate, do it on your own. But obviously there's, you know, we got to have that tension in, in it because it's a show. And so she does have other people vying for her land. More often than not, the land would just go back to the king mm-hmm. and he would have to pick somebody new. And if the king is as lazy as... Edward II is in 
is portrayed to be, he would do exactly what Edward II did and said, eh, just do whatever. Keep the land. I don't care. Mm. So that part exclusively of the show is the best part? One of. Okay. The show grew on me. It grew on me as a show, not as a period piece, though. So you, you, wouldn't, you still wouldn't say it's a period piece, really? I think, given everything, the dramatic turn that happens in the last ten minutes of episode nine, and then is the entirety of episode ten, mm-hmm. where he is a direct descendant of the Lord Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. I think that... Catholics wouldn't like that They all. wouldn't like that very much at all. Oh, also, I think... So, the show was supposed to have a second season, but it was cancelled. Yes. And so they were, they wrapped it up. Why was it canceled? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's bananas. Is it because of Ed Sheeran? <laughs> so Ed Sheeran sings the theme song of the show, and the theme song actually does slap. It's very good. Uh, Fifteen mm-hmm. out of ten theme song. I definitely jam historical to it. period dramas have fantastic theme songs. They really do. Rain. Except Rain. <laughs> That's a great song. <laughs> That rain is great. Um, Outlander, great. Outlander slaps. Don't remember the tutors, so it's probably okay. It was just instrumental. Yeah, it's, it's fine. it went do 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 do. Yeah, it does do. <laughs> no, I do remember it. <laughs> so Ed Sheeran theme- sings the theme song. It's called No One. Greatest tragedy of the entire show is that it's not on Spotify, mm. and you can't find it anywhere, except Dear YouTube. Ed- Put it on Spotify, Please. thanks. So, Ed Sheeran then also appears as... You remember how I mentioned that guy was skinning mm-hmm. pagans? He's that guy's assistant. <gasps> He's that guy's, like, um, apprentice. So, then in the last episode, when the guy who's been skinning the people goes to battle with the people that he's been skinning, the... <laughs> Ed Sheeran charges into battle with him and watches him die. And mm-hmm. he's like, no, master. And then he, like, steals a child. Right. As one does when one's master has died. This is the end of the ninth episode? This is the end of the tenth episode. Right. Well, it's like the middle of the tenth episode, because for some reason they had to have an epilogue that was 45 minutes long. (laughs) So long. It was just like 45 minutes setting up why the Baron and the main character- the Baroness and the main character could finally bang. Mm. Because we have to have sex in our period drama. Yeah, that's Except very we saved it for the very last scene. It's literally the last thing that's on screen, is them banging. Wow. That's great. And then credits. And that's I was how like, they. That's the wow. last requirement they had to have to make a period drama. That's why the epilogue is forty-five minutes. <laughs> they really had to get there. But the, basically, what I'm trying to say is that the show takes great pains to set up Ed Sheeran as the big bad of season two. And that's why it was canceled. <laughs> that is why the show was canceled. And I that came is in... why the show was canceled. That for that reason. I came only into the kitchen. Reason. Like, the day after watching it. And I said, Rachel, you'll never guess who was the big bad at the end of The Bastard Executioner. You'll never guess who the big bad of season two is going to be. And she said, who? And I said, guess. And she was like, I'm never going to guess. And I said, Ed Sheeran. Yeah. (laughs) Excuse me. That's not really exactly if I was watching, if you were watching a show and you said, who's the big bad now? And you were like, oh, it's Luke Bryan. I would be like, Why? (laughs) I guess Luke Bryan's a bit of like a that's a country reference. I'm trying to think of like a singer that people would know. If I were watching a show and you were like, actually in the fifth season of True Blood, Hosier is the villain, I would be like, oh, huh. Did you hear that at the end of Game of Thrones, it's Taylor a, Swift Ariana killed Daenerys? Yeah, and then Arya Grande came in and like slid us, and I'd be like, mm-hmm. Weird. What? Didn't know she was an actress, but okay. Is that sure and expensive to put in your show? Like, was I don't it think worth so. it? 
Can we have him here on the podcast? <laughs> Can we have Ed Sheeran on the podcast? Oh, Ed Sheeran. What would we talk about? We've already talked about the bastard executioner. We're going to talk about... I don't know. Find another show that Ed Sheeran's in. There's something in particular that bothers me in shows where... Um, like in Marie Antoinette, did you notice that everyone had an American accent? No. I did. It was because bothersome. I Except for certain characters had British accents for no reason. In, the sh- in shows where you choose... And it's the same thing. So when I did plays... The director of the play would always say that either we all consistently do an accent that makes sense for our characters, or none of us do an accent. But he said we're not just going to have some characters out here doing a British accent if nobody else is doing one. Yes, and he I says, completely agree with everybody that. Everybody else does the um, does an accent that's like just the American accent. Then you have the suspension of disbelief. But if one person is out here just mm-hmm. doing like I don't know, say hypothetically like a Welsh accent, then that's weird. Especially if you're like, if you're like, this play takes place in Italy, but then only one person is doing an Italian accent. You're like, well then, because obviously I think yeah. there's some level. It's that suspension of disbelief, like mm-hmm. you're talking about. And like. Otherwise it'll be, spe- you, you understand that people are speaking a language you don't understand and that like the show is being, being translated. translated. Yeah. yeah. But when you start doing an accent, it like throws a little wrench in that, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> So you're right. Everyone has to do an accent, or nobody does an accent. And in Marie Antoinette, n- nobody did an accent except for like four or five or ten people that weren't Kirsten Dunst or Jason mm-hmm. Schwartzman. And there was is off-putting. I really think people hear period drama and they think like British extremely accent. specific type of British accent for some reason, mm-hmm. no matter where it takes place. And yeah, I, I don't know. I don't like that. And there's. For a show that's taking so many great pains to divide a line between the British colonizers and the Welsh indigenous, only two characters do a Welsh accent. Mm -hmm. And when I say do a Welsh accent, I mean are actually Welsh actors. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense to me. But both of those characters, you're supposed to be sort of like laughing at them. Both of them are comedic. Yeah. In their idiocy. That's an interesting And one. so it's interesting to me that an American filmmaker came to Britain, cast British actors mm-hmm. to tell the story of people who were tired of British dominance. The point of the show, one of the many points of the show, I suppose, is, we, is telling the story of the Welsh trying to get Wales back. From mm-hmm. their British conquerors. And I feel like a failing in that element of the story is having the only people who f- sound Welsh being the only distinction the show is drawing between the Welsh and the British. Um, the only two characters who sound Welsh are played for laughs in the fact that they are Welsh. And I feel like that is... M- Maybe this American filmmaker, maybe the showrunner, can't tell the difference between a Welsh accent and a British accent because there are so many different British accents mm. and there are different Welsh accents. Like, when I say Welsh, I mean just a general Welsh sound. Um, <laughs> the general Welsh sound is, ooh. <laughs> you sound like a, like a children's show. Today's Welsh sound is, 
Brought to you by... Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Brought to you by whales. Um, but in that, I feel like that would have been a very important and interesting, as well as easy way mm-hmm. to distinguish between the two types of characters. And so there is a character name, uh, named Corbett. He's the commissioner. He's evil. Mm-hmm. Comedically so, as they tend to be in this show. But then he also takes a dramatic turn into being not evil for some reason. Okay. It seems to be a theme. Yeah. He's like the evil bisexual. You know that trope. Evil bisexuals who just want to fuck. Oh, this is Bill. It's it's Bill Compton from True Blood. Okay. It's Bill. It's Stephen Moyer from True Blood who plays Bill Compton. Vampire Bill, as they call him in the show. They they do. But for his character to have like a general received pronunciation British accent, and then for other characters who are Welsh to have Welsh accents and then try to cover them up so that they can better disguise themselves as British soldiers, as they are doing in the show, would have been an interesting take. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, there's just like one guy in a bad wig who's like, the joke is that he fucks animals. Oh. And he's the only one like, with a Welsh that accent. Like, that stereotype about, mm, that's not great. That's not great. Yeah. The only other character with a Welsh accent was only in there for like one episode, and he um, launched an attack on British soldiers. He was an inconsequential child. Mm. But yeah. Everyone else has, like, an uh, an RP accent or, like, a Cockney accent, which is fine. But I also don't necessarily agree with, like, giving someone a Cockney, Scottish, Welsh, or Irish accent to distinguish them as the stupid person in the group, which I feel like this show did a lot. Mm, yeah. And especially when you're telling a story about British dominance over the people of Wales, it's not a great look, bud. Yeah. But it got cancelled, so. So I never have to watch the show ever again, which is such a relief. How were the costumes? Pretty good. Oh, okay. Well, you know. They were they were low budget. They were definitely rented mm-hmm. from a shop, and they were definitely sewn by machine. But because all of the costumes were machine sewn. There was like an internal continuity there where they were all sort of reflecting off of each other. And a lot of the costumes were more accurate than I've seen in most medieval shows that I've watched recently. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the overcoats I really liked. Um, It's still a bit early for men to be wearing pants. (laughs) Mm. Men in court to be wearing pants at least. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still in the robes stage, but whatever. You know, all the men wore pants, and so I felt that all of the men wore pants. I was like, there you go. Like, There's consistency. There's consistency. When there's an internal consistency, you can sort of brush off things that are negligible in the in the sense of period accuracy. Mm-hmm. All the shoulders were right. That was nice. Oh, you, yeah, you're right. I really like the shoulders. They gotta be... The, so Lower. the shoulder seam right now falls on the modern yeah. shoulder seam falls on what's called the arm side, which is the, it's like your armpit to over your shoulder. Mm-hmm. That's the the circle that you draw that's your arm side. Mm-hmm. And a shirt that fits should have the shoulder seam right on the arm side. That is a very recent 
uh, like as as recent as the nineteen early nineteen hundreds, early twentieth century. Mm-hmm. Like that's how recent it is. Um, so to see that in shows is such a small thing. Where did it used thing. to be? It used to be about here, and I'm gesturing to where my shoulder sort of ends. It's lower. It's much the lower. The seam is much lower. If on your shirt right now that you are wearing, a picture of seam that's. Would you say like. Two to three two inches to three lower. Finger lengths? I would say two to three inches. Okay. Yeah. Lower. Mm. An inch and a half on the shirt that I'm wearing now. Mm. But yes, it's much lower. It falls onto the upper arm rather than onto the shoulder itself, and this gives you a wider range of movement with the sewing techniques that were available at the time Mm -hmm. and that were widely used. This is a very visual subject for a podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe one day I'll make video essays, but Uh, who would watch them? Someone. You almost said me, but then I you did, considered, I reconsider. that you would not watch that. moment, like, in yeah. Frozen, where I'm like, if only somebody would watch your video essays. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to watch me recreate a medieval, medieval dress? <laughs> but yes, thank you, Rachel, for sitting through me talking about The Bastard Executioner. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on Hulu if you want to watch it, no, if I that don't. seems like... I'm not talking to you. If that seems like something... <laughs> you would be interested in but overall i don't know if i can recommend it with a sound mind steel and spice is a podcast produced by criticalmassmedia.tv To listen to more podcasts, videos, or articles, visit us at criticalmassmedia.tv. For extended cuts, exclusive content, and ad-free listening, subscribe to our Patreon. Thanks for listening.